1: and get 10% off your plan.
2: My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big row ass man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day.
0: Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com/generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com/generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be to be. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek podcast where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner, uh, the creative and innovation editor with Adweek.
3: And I'm Coim, the community editor at Adweek. And we are joined by a special guest today. We have T.L. Stanley, who's calling in from California. Hi, Terry. How are you? Good morning,
2: Happy Friday, everyone.
3: <laughs> we record this on Fridays, and we kind of, you know, look back as we look ahead, and uh, we want to, you know, bring up one of the stories that really took off, um, which has to do with the cannabis industry. You've written about it for us a couple of times, but what's really happening
2: now um, that you've seen? Um, quarantine has been very good for weed, and I guess that's not so surprising. Um, Although something we didn't really focus too much on in the story was that um, medical patients, medical buyers are fueling much of this sales surge, but recreational buyers are also fueling this increase in cannabis purchases. So um, it's been a really, really interesting time for this very scrappy industry.
0: Tell us a bit about where we stand right now in terms of uh, legalization, and then you know, in terms of how many how many states is cannabis legal now? I, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, Terry. It it still remains illegal at the federal level. So, kind of, how would you describe the the regulatory status of cannabis?
2: Um, you're absolutely right. It is still federally illegal, which creates a lot of very interesting problems for people in this industry. They are not included in any of the stimulus package. So being federally illegal means you cannot get federal funds. You, uh, they, They're not getting paycheck protection. They're not getting any of that stimulus money that's coming from the federal government these days. Um, so they really are very much on their own. Um, we, people wonder if this sales surge... And what the cannabis industry is doing right now will help the federal legalization push. Um, it might. It might actually. It's um, legal right now in 33 states for medical sales, 11 states plus DC for recreational sales. But as we've seen uh, in the pandemic. States handled this very differently. Massachusetts, for instance, decided that medical sales were essential. So those businesses could continue to operate, but their recreational sales, their governor said it's not essential. So there were some dispensaries, for instance, that had opened in the last number of months that had to close entirely. Um, so Massachusetts has really taken a hit. Um, Illinois, for instance, I've heard about some shortages and some problems with product and their supply chain, probably because they just started selling recreational at the beginning of this year. So I think maybe they didn't have the, the wrinkles ironed out of their businesses yet. So they probably also had people from neighboring states Coming in and buying because the neighboring states have no legal sales of any kind, so it's just been a very interesting situation. So you wrote about the you know these record breaking sales,
3: and I think what's interesting is that even in this industry, that people are stocking up. So from a demand side, it's also been um, hard for the providers to kind of, especially switch um, as they try to navigate um, this tremendous growth um, in
2: e-commerce and in edibles and whatnot? Some dispensaries really didn't have the infrastructure to do e-commerce. So they were forced, if they wanted to still operate, they were forced to overnight learn how to, to deal with things like click and collect. They had to do um, maybe a uh, curbside service where they had perhaps never done that before. Um, they had to you know, sign up with delivery services if they didn't have that uh, already established. It, was, uh, it required a lot, of, uh, a lot of work and a lot of very quick action from them if they wanted to remain in business.
0: So it, you, you wrote about, so I, I should clarify that the piece you wrote, uh, the headline is Five Ways Quarantine Has Changed the Cannabis Industry Forever. And to your point just now, this ability uh, for those who could uh, transition quickly and pivot, uh, as you know, so many pivots these days, <laughs> um, but those those who could find ways to embrace delivery, uh, e-commerce, and a combination thereof, it seems like they've done really well. But also, it sounds like the customer's we're like, you know, I, I like this. This is nice. I may just stick with this even after quarantine is over.
2: Um, that's absolutely true. Not only for the convenience of it, but there there probably still is a bit of a lingering stigma. And let's just say you are a casual cannabis consumer. Perhaps you don't want to appear in person at your neighborhood cannabis store or you might not want to drive across town to go into a cannabis retail because maybe you, you still feel like that's not a good look for you or you you know you don't want your uh, your fellow PTA moms to know that you're a cannabis user if you're if you're now able to switch to delivery i think that's probably it's just kind of better all the way around. Certainly it's more convenient for you, but there's, um, there's a bit of privacy involved.
0: So let's talk about in terms of the products that have become most popular. Uh, it seems like per your story that there's this kind of unprecedented, I think we all think of edibles, but we think of it maybe in this kind of you know, a uh, cliched uh, image of pot brownies. and you wrote about the fact that edibles, non-sweet edibles, more savory edibles are blowing up. I- infused beverages are really growing uh, faster than than it seemed like the industry expected.
2: Absolutely. And I think that um, the data has shown a real growth in those categories, uh, probably because of who's buying. And again, it's kind of a convenience issue. Also, people talk about the uh, the difference in edibles and some other form of THC where, let's say an infused wine, you will feel the effects sooner and then they'll be gone sooner. So if that suits your lifestyle, if you don't want to be, you know, really high all day because you've smoked, um, you could probably control your dosage a little bit better with some of these edibles. I think that's very appealing to some of the new demographics who are in this space. So yes, there, we've seen uh, things like the infused beverages, um, edibles that might be, you're right, not the, not the throwback pot brownie, but something that's quite a bit more sophisticated than that. And that definitely appeals to um, let's just say the cannabis curious or the new cannabis consumer.
3: Yeah. And there also seems to be a shift, um, you know, in what you mentioned with breaking stigma, um, especially with the content that is coming out of marketing um, through, throughout this time um, you wrote about, you know, a live stream with some big names, um, and also, you know, more people are hosting kind of these virtual events um, that include not just, um, you know, kind of messaging, but also, let's say, like yoga and meditation and live music. So that's going to be a big driver for for advertising in this
2: industry, right? Uh, I think it'll be huge, because 420 taught this industry a lot of things. And one of those was that this community is very hungry for content. And the the makeup of some of those live streams was really interesting. And you're right to point out things like yoga and meditation, because the interest in health and wellness is so intense right now. And the cannabis community has, has always had that message. But they're, they're, really going to be pushing that. It's going to be very top of mind right now. And they will very much lean into that side of things. Also, the education. There are podcasts coming and video series, product demonstrations, lots of things where Um, People are looking for information. They want real information. They want to be educated. And if they can go to some original content that tells them exactly what to expect from, say, certain products, um, that's going to be very, very important. The the industry is also really pushing their social agendas, their, their very activist roots Almost every one of those 420 events had a social component, a social responsibility or charitable, however you want to call it, component, Um, things like Um, mass incarceration and environmental issues. And the cannabis community has always been very embedded in those kinds of things. And now they they will again, lean into that kind of messaging um, to really kind of build that engagement and that sense of community with their people.
0: You know, uh, w- w- one other thing, and you know, I don't want to give away too much because people really do need to read your article about the five ways that quarantine has changed this industry. Uh, so, part of me is like, S- go to adweek. dot com, read it all. But I did. <laughs> I did, and you should. Um, but I really want to ask about, you know, it, it feels like for the past few years, there's been this uh, real concerted effort, very sophisticated effort, to carve out brands within this industry to be those first brands, and some of those have risen very quickly and then fallen off, and and. Uh, you know but we've seen it both at the dispensary level and at the product level but then you write about that one of the newest trends uh, that we really see coming out of this is the idea of the value brand uh, that feels like a new a new evolution for this uh, for the branding side of this industry
2: you know what it absolutely is especially when we look at Uh, a previous trend that I was watching for a while. And I I was kind of curious and interested in it. It was kind of fascinating because anything that's designer and luxury and high end is kind of fascinating in a way. But there was this, there had been a a trend of very luxurious, beautifully packaged, expensive products um, in the cannabis space. And the bottom Will absolutely drop out of that um, unless you are, I don't know, let's say the one percent. So the yes, this is new. The the value side of things again, being a very scrappy industry, I, I believe we will see a lot more of that sort of compassionate pricing, um, and you know, pr- products that are modestly priced because. People are strapped. People are very economically strapped. They're concerned. They're worried about their budgets. They will not be impulse buying. They will not be experimenting. They, if they know and like a brand, they will stick with that brand. But if they need to trade down because they lost their job, then uh, some of these young offshoots that are modestly priced, I think will do very, very well.
3: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I do want to bring up another trend because I imagine um, one thing that people are leaning into that are familiar are um, puzzles. And I imagine that there are going to be, you know, cannabis related puzzles and other products um, coming out too, because, you know, the industry is going into various touch points um, and into different, different, you know, price points as well. Um, I am not a puzzle person uh,
2: are you guys I'm really not but I could definitely see puzzles based on fun things in the cannabis industry including bud itself there are you know publications like high times that run these really beautiful loving shots of marijuana leaves and um, buds and I, I could see those being puzzles.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's been interesting. Uh, you know, I've, I've I've seen people like who are good friends of mine, uh, maybe often without kids or with with older kids uh, who are like, we're on puzzle number seven. And we're talking like thousand piece puzzles, you know. Uh, I'm still on puzzle number one uh, <laughs> going into like, what, nine weeks of quarantine or whatever I'm on. Um, and uh, I, it, yeah, it's one of those where like I, I enjoy them I like the meditative aspect of it I like how you kind of get into this thousand yard stairs zone where you start putting the pieces in without even really looking at them because some part of your geometric brain takes over like that that's so, so to that point like the the picture doesn't really matter um, but I, I am not one of those but it has been fascinating seeing how brands have tried to get into that space and agencies have kind of nudged them there of just like this is the unofficial pastime other than cannabis, the unofficial pastime of, uh, quarantine. And it's, I I would say two things. One is I think it's really clever how brands have done this. Uh, we had McDonald's in, what's that, Sweden, uh, where they made a a burger puzzle. Maybe it was the UK. Um, but they, they only made a few of them and then they gave them away to like super fans. Uh, and then in, um, the Canadian Canadian agency rethink uh, made a Heinz puzzle that is 570 pieces because it's Heinz 57. Um, they made 570 piece puzzle that's just ketchup. It's just red. The entire the entire thing is one red thing. I just want to like, cry it, thinking about that. It's it's like. I've never been one of those. I I knew this family growing up, okay, and and I still I still see them quite often. They're like my my family's best friend family, you know. And the growing up, I remember hearing about how they would do puzzles, and then they would finish a puzzle and they would turn it over and do it again, like with no. the, the brown side pointed <laughs> up. No. Yeah. So they were the the first ones I thought of when I saw this like five hundred seventy piece solid red puzzle where I was just like, no. No, thank you. Uh, that but, puzzle
2: would make me insane.
0: <laughs> I mean, it, it's. I will say this though. Here's my conundrum on these on these puzzles. I also have a board game in my cupboard, uh, made by Wyden and Kennedy Amsterdam for Milka Biscuits, which is a cookie company. Uh, and it's, it's a really well-crafted board game. But here's my problem with these, these kinds of things is that they always make them in these very limited productions, right? Because it's expensive. It is not something you can easily mass produce. So I want to say the Heinz puzzle, they only made 57 of them, maybe not even that many of the McDonald's puzzle. So it's like part of me feels guilty when we write about these because they're just doing it for publicity, and they, I mean, they are making them. It's not like they're fake. They are making them and they're giving them to probably influencers, but supposedly giving them to fans who say why they want the puzzle or why they need the puzzle. But I always noticed that even though we we always put those caveats in our articles, you know, not everyone's going to read the article and people are always like, I'm going to get one of these or they'll tag their friends. We should each order one of these. And part of me is like, you can't like this is basically a, a publicity stunt. But you know, maybe once they see the initial run kind of blow up, we've seen this with branded apparel, right? Like they'll make fifty of something just so that they can say we made a KFC, you know, big green egg or whatever, and then uh, one C. Yeah, and then they'll like they'll sell out within. Like if it's something that requires more effort than just like a cafe press or. Like, if you actually have to physically produce it, then they make them in these impossibly small batches. So,
3: well, yeah, I still want the Popeyes Ivy Park inspired outfit. Yeah,
0: that one sold out like in, you know, an hour or whatever. It's like we always, and again, this is just a PR playbook thing is that they want to be able to say, we made a branded blank, right? Like, we made a, a branded cutlery set or a branded um, anything that's that's cool or interesting and then they want to say that they sold out in 15 minutes and of course the part they always leave out is that they only made like a hundred of them right and uh and the one that still kills me is uh because again we covered it and i almost again felt bad covering it because it it's you can't get a hold of these things and maybe that's just the world we live in because of supreme and all these things it's just like you just have to be one of those who's like writing a bot to buy these things Uh, but i remember once was i think columbia the the sport the outerwear company they made star wars inspired jackets that looked like like they had a han solo jacket they had a princess leia jacket all based on empire strikes back like all based on what they actually wore in the movie and they looked amazing like way better than anything else i've ever seen columbia make and i mean they they sold out within like five seconds of going on sale (laughs) like I'm not so kidding. So the, li-
2: like, the the limited run makes it highly covetable, but not that many people are gonna it, it's not a mass product is what yeah. you're saying.
0: Yeah, they're doing it for publicity or you could argue that they just want them to be really high quality. But, you know, in the end I'm like they they're making them so people like me will write about it.
3: <laughs> I'm part
0: of the machine.
3: <laughs> be a part of the solution. I don't know.
0: But uh, uh terry do you have any uh any hobbies or anything you've picked up in quarantine
2: um i feel like i'm just doing about as much as i can to keep my head above water i would love to say that i've learned a new language and that i'm touring every art museum (laughs) around the world i i really would i would love to be able to say that and um other than working and working out and gardening um which is therapeutic and lovely, but I did that before. I I, always, I already did that. So um, no, I can't say that I've picked up any new hobbies. And that's, that's a real shame, right?
0: That's because we keep working you so hard. <laughs> so there's, no, there's no time got to ad week all the time well terry stanley is a senior editor writer for ad week uh she covers cannabis she covers other really fascinating niche industries like uh the alternative meat or meat alternative industry um and uh a few other uh like what what would you say are some other niches that we've uh, we've kind of kept you on for the last uh, last few months
2: yeah i kind of became the de facto fake meat reporter didn't i <laughs>
0: did yeah it's great
2: um And I really enjoy my plant-based folks. They're a very interesting crew. Um, And there's something brewing on that front, which will be interesting soon, because given the current meat shortage, and I think everyone's concern again, with health and wellness and climate change and the environment, we're going to see some some real activity on that front. But um, I, I love creativity and brand stuff and... I'm kind of all over the place. And sports, I like sports. So every summer there's uh, Most Powerful Women in Sports, which is fun.
0: Yeah. If you go to adweek.com almost any given day and look at the most popular stories, you will find a T.L. Stanley (laughs) story. (laughs) Her stuff is uh, very topical and very popular. So thank you. Uh, I know you're very busy. And so we really appreciate you making time for us this week.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Now, Co, I hear that you have a uh, fun conversation. We've tried to, as uh, regular listeners will know, uh, we've tried to kind of include some other conversations since we can't all be together the way we usually are. uh, For the Adweek podcast, we've been kind of including these other fun conversations that we have through the week. So who do you have for us this week?
3: Yeah, so it's a fun conversation, but it's also one that brings in some serious elements. Uh, We're going to talk about well-being, well-being, as it is Mental Health Awareness Month, uh, with Aaron Harvey, who not only co-founded an agency um, during the last recession, but he also has a nonprofit called Made of Millions, which helps kind of try to normalize um, the conversation around mental health. So that's coming up after the break. We'll be right back. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for being with me.
4: Yeah, I'm excited to be here.
3: Um, You have done a lot of things. Um, For anyone who doesn't know, you've had an an agency for over 10 years. um, And also, you have been an outspoken advocate for mental health, especially in the space of marketing and advertising and creatives. Um, So can you tell us a little bit more about you?
4: Yeah, no problem. Um, I am, you know, an inspiring and failing musician who likes (laughs) to make uh, his his natural progression into advertising. I think that's really common for uh, a lot of artists. And um, yeah, I've been, you know, started this agency with my partner, Alex, back in 2009, when we were in the other recession. And we're like, man, if we could survive this, then we'll, we'll make the cut. And then here we are now in a totally different economic environment. Um, So it's really, it's been really interesting. But yeah, my um, background is just, I like to make stuff and uh, advertising was just a great fit. And that that kind of parlayed over into the mental health world when I was ready to start advocating. It's like, you know, what's the one thing that's missing from the mental health world? It's like design and branding and storytelling.
3: That's incredible that you started in 2009. Um, we all have to have a sense of resiliency going through our current crisis. And (laughs) I'm sure you've seen a lot um, over the years, and this is an overused word, but, you know, have had to to pivot a lot of things from a professional standpoint and also from an advocacy standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. I
4: mean, there's, uh, you know, I think starting out very much in digital production world, uh, you know, my partner Alex gave us an edge with, doing really good data science and e-com work but we went that hard long road of you know we weren't big agency guys we were just kind of scrappy startup entrepreneurs and refused to work with agencies and just went direct to brand and it took a long long time to build it and and in doing that we've had to grow from being really digital to being more of a communications you know agency someone that can kind of develop the brand narrative and create the the touch points and all that other jazz and like the best part about that is I'm learning from clients. I'm learning from people we hire. I'm learning from other agencies. And that allows me to bring all of that mindset into, you know, the sort of mental health nonprofit world. Um, so it, it all complements each other in, in, a cool, in a cool way.
3: Yeah. Do you think things are better? It's kind of like a chicken and egg question, but with mental health, you know, there's hopefully more awareness now, but are, are people better? Are we doing a better job at talking about it? Even
4: uh, the media is doing a better job of talking about it. It's getting a little better in organizations. Um, around this time last year, we launched our Dear Manager campaign, and with that came uh, this guide, which was called Beautiful Brains, and it's still out, still super relevant and free. And it had all these like actionable things that organizations can do. And I am excited to share that a year later, we've had you know numerous agencies. Essentially, utilize it—not full stop—but utilize it as a jumping-off point to rework their culture, rework their policy. We've also seen a lot of organizations, you know, even the really big ones, coming out to us and saying, "You know, how do we actually? Uh, how do we actually like make people aware of what our benefits are? How do we think about accommodations?" And so we've done some of that consulting work along the way, uh, all pro bono, <laughs> and like. Mm-hmm. But it's been great to see that the conversation is shifting. Um, But the reality of people not knowing what's going on in terms of the symptoms in their head, not feeling comfortable talking about it, the reality of uh, people being afraid that there would be some type of retaliation or uh, overlook uh, of their skill set if they're deemed a certain way, that's all super real. And when you combine that with, you know, our lovely industry of burnout um, you know, you, you still have a huge problem that we're trying to, we're trying to scratch at.
3: Yeah. Um, I know you did that project with the forays, and it's, you know, great to bring up again as it's mental health awareness month. Um, one thing that I also do on the side, not always pro bono, <laughs> but is, um, you know, lead yoga and meditation sessions and for the corporate world, um, uh, I and my collaborators, we have had to frame it in different ways so that people can approach it, you know, so that it's relatable, that it's accessible. Um, one thing I like, uh, this kind of design infographic on your website, madeofmillions.com, is this one where, you know, it kind of shows in um, a, a way, like all the ways that COVID 19 anxiety can appear in your body. And I think that's a really good access point for for just being like, hey, are you feeling like really tired? Are you trembling? Like what's, what's going on with you? So I'm wondering like what you're hearing lately from the community of like what they're feeling and going through, like what is really happening?
4: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's always good to ground all of all of this in the idea that what is anxiety? It's, it's really uncertainty and our ability to, process that uncertainty in a healthy way. And so when you just layer, you know, COVID-19 on top of that, uh, it just exacerbates all of it. So, you know, someone might have a healthy level of anxiety around a big presentation and will my boss like this or will my client like this or will my creative director say x and that's all normal but when that uncertainty and that anxiety gets to such a point where you don't want to present or you start to miss out on opportunities in your company that's when it gets in your way that's when it becomes more of a disability and um when you layer on that covid piece on top of it it's it's really really challenging. So you know we're hearing a lot from the community which is getting laid off, unfortunately, or furloughed, or having you know major pay cuts. Um, you know that there's just uh, there's just a tremendous amount of of anxiety exacerbated by all these unknowns. And unfortunately, even as employers, we don't have good answers for people. If we're being honest, right? We're going day by day to make decisions and trying to use transparency. As a mechanism to relieve some of that anxiety that people have, um, but it's really tough. And uh, and I'll say one thing on the flip of that is a lot of people who have experience with meditation and mindfulness, with um, exposure therapy. Um, these could be people who've been treated for obsessive compulsive disorder, or PTSD, or things like that. They actually tend to be handling this crisis much better. And yep. Yeah, it's because they have those behavioral tools in their tool set that they've learned, and maybe they've learned that the hard way, and now they're able to deploy those in this environment and really focus their anxiety on only the things that they can control.
3: Yeah, really knowing that nothing is in our control—the reality. <laughs>
4: yeah, exactly. But,
3: um, I say yes because not because I'm um, a trained psychologist or a psychiatrist, um, but because you know I know you're very open with your OCD um i have a traumatic childhood and i have had to learn um coping mechanisms um because of that and i had those practices in place before way before um the pandemic hit and i think what happened and what i've seen in my circles is that people have come to rely on the routines that they had before and you know frankly to learn something new to learn anything even if it was simple, was difficult for me. But going back to something that I already knew either in my body or that I knew that, you know, if I sit down for just five minutes, I know I'll feel better afterwards, Mm -hmm. even if it takes me a while to get there because I have that, you know, previous, my own personal institutional knowledge. Um, So, you know, I am concerned, especially, you know, for the people, not only who are laid off because, that is so stressful, but also for the people who have to stay, um, they're grieving their lost colleagues mm-hmm. and also might have to feel extra burden of work.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's we've had uh, you know we've seen both sides of this so far the the human toll and economic toll. Um, you know, one of our teammates lost her mom and her uncle. And uh, unfortunately, her her dad who got COVID stabilized, with this is like devastating, and um, you know there's really no no words to put on that. And when you're running a, a company and you're looking at well, what really matters, you know, is it the fact that account X put this on pause, or someone isn't spending their media, or this project isn't moving forward, or new business inquiries are down. All those seem all those things tend to be uh, all of a sudden very. Uh, tactical and um, and really just not not that kind of bigger story. So um, you know, another thing I'd say, like when you're talking about your experience and how you're able to parlay that into this new world, I think so often we talk about therapy as um, like because I'm in this negative place now, I need to go do this thing that is going to be really like painful, and I don't want to do it, and that's all valid, but. Really, what you're talking about is you have skills. I'm talking about, I have learned certain skills through exposure therapy and other things like that, where I deploy those in real time and it allows me to stay ahead and it allows me to reduce my anxiety overall as a person. Um, and so, really, just framing things as therapy is one thing, but framing like skill, like these are really like skills building, you know, meditation is right. skills building. Like, I just think it's really kind of branded wrong. And I'm sure there'll be, you know, tons of. Startups doing it differently, but uh, getting to the idea that really it's skills that you can deploy in real time is what it's all about.
3: Yeah, that's a good point, and maybe a good analogy is you know your computer as the brain, um, and if it's fried, it doesn't work. Um, <laughs> and if there are yeah. too many tabs, it gets overwhelmed. And so the skill is to reduce the tabs to do the updates. Uh,
1: <laughs> yeah,
3: uh, and and you know, kind of have a, a boundary of. Um, Closing it every once in a while, I still forget every night to to do the update. Um, so so today will be the day I say. <laughs> <laughs> but but on a on a larger note, you know what can we do um, as a community of creatives to um, support each other and listen to each other um, as we continue to navigate these um, you know uncertain waters.
4: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's been really difficult for me is is staring at the screen all day. And I think I've realized how little of the industry I like that is, um, you know, the email exchanges and the meetings and this and that and how much of it that I really loved, which was getting in a room and brainstorming, looking at beautiful work, going and presenting and pitching an idea. And all those things are are really on pause. And so even for myself, like... <laughs> talk about like the brain over processing, like yesterday, I literally had to like call a producer and be like, can you just get on my screen share and micromanage me for 30 minutes? Because I can't like put one letter in front of the next right now. And I need to get this done. Um, so I think just being there for each other in that capacity, being willing to be vulnerable and share exactly where you're at and what that means, which can be so hard to do when everything is remote, um, you know, as managers and as as owners of these companies, we need to be finding ways to uh, uplift our community digitally, uplift our you know our teams digitally. We have a a shout out channel on Slack that goes off, and it's amazing. And people get shout out for like the silliest things, or they get shout out because they just like crushed a concept presentation or whatever it is. And something as small as that, it really helps us throughout our day. It's like it's just like oh my god, we're actually human beings, and then you know. Um, I don't know, but there's so many different things that we can do to just like make sure we check in with each other, understand what each other are, celebrate the wins, take the time to celebrate all the small things, recognize that we need help, raise our hand. There's a tremendous gain that you can get when someone asks a favor of you, when someone is vulnerable to you and you can help them. And I think that's all reciprocal. Um, but yeah, I mean, those, those are some of the things.
3: Yeah, we're, you know, we're commuting less, but we're still on our screens more. And I do miss that part too, like when I get magazine spreads from the printer, you know, that's an amazing part when I get to chat with my art director, um, that's one of my favorite parts of the day. And it's just like, even it's just a five minute, you know, turn away from the screen, but it's so nice. And I like Mm -hmm. that example of asking your coworker to, you know, put one letter in front of the other, because that, you know, you're letting somebody else take control and you're asking for Help to to be in the driver's seat for just a little bit, and you know, science will also show that you know generosity is good for you too. So you know, not only is getting a praise or a shout out awesome, but giving that makes you feel good too. Um, so it's definitely you know a way for for colleagues to connect on a personal level for sure. Um, yeah,
4: and like, how do you balance being vulnerable but also being consistent because you know, in this environment, if I was like, oh, well, this client's pausing this, like, hey, guys, everybody, like, too much transparency could lead the team to be like, oh, my God, well, if that client's pausing, like, I'm on that account, what does that mean, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so, like, I've got to find that healthy balance or really anyone who's managing, find that healthy balance of, like, you know, being transparent. Offering a level of vulnerability which then allows other people on your team to do the same thing with you, which is so necessary and so important in this environment. but also just being consistent and very careful in the communications I uh, making sure that those are, are coordinated with respect to some of the more challenging topics around office space and rent and you know payroll and like all that other stuff.
3: Yeah, consistency is important um, especially because humans don't generally. Like change, <laughs> um, so doing a little switcheroo, does, you know, just throws everybody off. Um, but you're in New York City, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's get a little bit more vulnerable or personal. Like, All how right. how have you been doing? Um, you know, in city life.
4: Man, it's, it has been, so I stayed in New York. I, I live in the East village, our office over on Broadway and Bleecker. I felt this connection that I just had to stay. Of course, I didn't know how long or like how serious this was. I certainly didn't think it was as serious as it was at first, you know, um, and, and being here in just a concrete box, you know, apartment on a fifth floor walk up with, you know, weather that's not been favorable, um, you know, the closest thing I've got is Tompkins Square Park to like greenery and it's absolutely taking a toll on me like um it's this weird predicament where for the first time in 10 years which the longest vacation I've taken in 10 years is 2 weeks and I only have my phone off for one of those weeks so like I need a break and here I am in a situation where I could be in anywhere in the world doing what I love which is surfing every single day uh and still managing the client relationships and everything else I need to do because the whole world is remote so but instead of that, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in a box in the East Village and it's it's pretty brutal. You know, I'm like uh, <laughs> there's been some waves here and there at Rockaway and I've, I've had to go out and get them because I'm, I'm going crazy. Um You know, fortunately I have a dog and like that allows me to get out and walk the dog. But man, it's like, it's super brutal. It's just staring at the screen and then all the extra extracurricular stuff you could be doing, like, (laughs) yeah, learn Spanish online, uh, do this, do this. Like it's all online and you're like, geez, like I can't go online again.
3: Yep. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, so. I'm glad you're catching those waves. And at least you get to go up and down five flights of stairs for exercise. <laughs> like, you know, that's
4: a really good point. Yeah. It's like my my overall steps are down in a terrible way, right? Like I used to walk yeah. everywhere in New York. So
3: Oh, me too. I used to average ten thousand steps yeah. and now it's like, I took twelve steps today. And no, that is not an AA reference. And it's just like <laughs> literally twelve steps in my shoebox, you know, in Midtown. Yeah. And it's hard when you know the the weather affects you too, um, and then you know the added stress of what's going to happen when there is good weather with all these people outside without masks. You yeah. Know? And then I'm like, you know what? I can't worry about it. I'm just not going to go out when they're out. Right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I've definitely had to had to um, go through the roller coaster of you know I had to go to Korea um, to take care of. Um, a family situation in the middle of COVID nineteen, and that was pretty stressful. And then adjust back to this life, which I chose as well. I chose to come back because mm-hmm. I knew, I knew at least in the short term, it would be better for my mental health, and I needed mm-hmm. to feel grounded here. Um, you know, but now we're all a little stir crazy wherever we are, and um, you know, just trying not to schedule too many Zoom calls again, <laughs> right? And again. And again, <laughs>
4: yeah. Oh, my god, I, I'm not going to lie, though. I have been um, like on some conference calls. I have been like uh, learning like songs on guitar. I've always wanted to learn. And I'm sure a lot of people are doing stuff like that when they're on the conference calls.
3: Yeah. No, that's great. <laughs> I, I've learned a TikTok dance or two. And that's, that's kind of like, OK, I'm just going to do one this week. No pressure. There's like no pressure. I'm just doing something what i i feel like in my body
4: yeah i feel like you know i mean so with the nonprofit, we with made of millions like it's still super diy right it's it's self-funded it's me and you know a couple other people um we you know only one employee um you know i i get my paycheck and we figure out how to make that work and um but the beauty of it is we, we just kind of make and create and do what we want to do, what we think is right for the audience. And, um, so that's very powerful. And during this time, I've been able to focus a lot of my energy and effort on, on uh, advocacy work, uh, which I, you know, do anyways, it's like a double job, but, um, but that's been like a good center and like focus for me is just like grinding out, you know, new campaigns or content or ideas or COVID or this or that. Um, as just a means of like, not being stir crazy. <laughs>
3: yeah. yeah, And, and you clearly have the skill and the passion for it. Um, so Aaron Harvey from made of millions, I do want to thank you for your time and for your honesty and um, thanks for, for the work that you do and the voice that you have.
4: Yeah, my pleasure. Um, appreciate it.
0: Thanks so much, Cope for sharing that conversation and uh for being back on the show as always. It's always great to to chat with you.
3: My pleasure. And don't send me any puzzles. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's just solid brown puzzle. Here's a it's like the I'm I'm trying to think of the worst the worst industry that could jump on this trend. It's just like the petroleum industry. Here's just it's just a thick black pool puzzle. <laughs> Have fun. Uh, our theme music is by home this week's episode was produced by CoM and edited by lane mcgivney Uh, if you uh, have not left us a review already on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts uh, please do so those reviews mean a lot to us and they help new listeners discover the show you can reach us anytime at podcast at adweek.com that's podcast at adweek.com i'm david greiner the creative and innovation editor with adweek and we will be back next week